I want to thank Brother Scott for uh, standing in quickly last week for me. I, uh, I asked Mike to put it on the website, though my team went down in ignominious defeat. I was always a winner being there with my daughter. It was a great couple days, and it was a, it was a marvelous time. So anyway, and for all of the sympathy that I've been getting, you know, the jabs as we've been going out the door, I just want to say one word. I really depreciate it, and, uh, and uh, you get that, depreciate, never mind. Uh, after the Kentucky Wildcats lost, we were out in this giant square in Kansas City, Missouri, and all of the teams, Auburn and Kentucky and a couple other teams that were there, we're all cheering for Duke to lose. That didn't seem quite right for the Duke fans either. But that was the nature of the NCAA competition. Well, today, we're talking about a different kind of competition. The crisis there always is between good and between evil. And for the context of the world in, in which we live, which is a difficult context. And so I've been looking forward to starting a three-part sermon series that begins today on how Jesus Christ delivers everyday people in this, uh, in this world with a difficult uh, context going on, a rising institution and secularism that seems to fly in the face of Christianity instead of actually support Christianity like uh, was once happening in our country. We recognize that in the midst of the adversity, sometimes it gets overwhelming. But the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus Christ wants to meet you there and to give you a very certain victory. And the word of God wants you to be assured of that victory. So that's what this morning's theme is all about. We're going to take communion this morning at the end of the service. And I want to remind you that in the midst of his adversity, when Jesus Christ was getting ready to suffer on the cross... He had a meal with his disciples. And he was teaching them symbolically that in the mystery of his grace, he would always be with his people in the midst of adversity. And so in that last supper, he took the bread and he, he blessed it. And he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this bread is my body given for you. And so we say when we kneel around the altar and doing the formal liturgy, take and eat, feed on Christ by faith in your hearts, and be thankful. Likewise, after supper, on what has become known as the Last Supper, Jesus took the cup and he blessed it. He said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so we say in the liturgy, drink all of this, remembering that Christ died for you, and be thankful. And so this morning, we're going to be thinking about how God took the powers of adversity that stand against us, and he turned those tables so that we can say, if God be for us, if God be for us, who can be against us? Samson's parents, like some other parents in scriptures, were faced with the sadness that they couldn't have children together. And then God gave them 
a great, great promise. It'd be good if I was in the book of Judges instead of the book of Samuel. Excuse me. The promise was this. You will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite. Set apart to God from birth and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. He will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And so Samuel's story is told in the book of Judges chapter 13 to 16. It's also mentioned in the faith chapter in the book of Hebrews. Now there are three kinds of adversity that Samson was facing. The first adversary was a context that was closing in around him. There were enemies that opposed the work of God and the covenant of God in his land. As a matter of fact, Dagon was the God and the Philistines had so conquered Israel that Israel didn't know if the nation was ever going to be able to freely worship again or they were just going to continue in bondage. They really had done a number conquering the Israelites. So the culture had gone bad around him. It was bad. Are you aware that according to the most extensive mission report written in the world, Operation World, which is an Oxford Roundtable discussion of missiologists. The missiologists are saying today that the United States is no longer the number one church. For years and years, it was celebrated as the most Christian nation on the planet. But now, the church in China has grown stronger than the church in the United States. And so they rank the church of China as the number one church of the world. But do you know where they rank the United States of America now? say that the culture around, around the church in the United States of America is the second most secular culture anywhere in the world except for the country of Sweden. I'm just quoting the report from Operation World. Meaning that secularism has so grown in the United States of America that it's very, very difficult for there to be a conversion to Christ because of how great the secularism is. We've certainly seen in our lifetime, and I've more than many who are not quite as aged and infirmed in this uh, congregation uh, have seen in your lifetime. But in my lifetime as a young person starting out in the ministry and working with youth in church, there was no such thing as the youth group having to face the adversity that there was a school event during church hours. Church was set aside so that kids could be morally and spiritually formed and that in turn would play a role in the school systems so that there would be a, a, a great moral witness in the school, sort of like uh, the salt of the earth, as Jesus said. And there was no such, uh, there, there was no such event that could be planned in a, a school board or anything like that that took the place of a regular church hours. 
And so we've seen some of this uh, secularizing of, of America. I was really shocked when I was the president of a graduate school and asking for the U.S. military to come in and post the colors that had become against the law for a military officer to carry the Christian flag in a church alongside of the American flag in a church. Just the encroaching powers that we take for granted. They were all around Samson. He was losing the game. The, the God Dagon was more revered than the Lord Samson's God. And so God raised up Samson to be a special judge, a deliverer, a man who would have all kinds of power. And he had superhuman strength. This wasn't even the Captain Marvel age, man. He had an unbelievable strength that was given to him. Of course, he would have got arrested with it. I mean, uh, Peter would have had this guy's number because he was this practical prankster and his jokes weren't funny and the people hated him. He tied the tails of foxes around a torch and let the foxes loose in the Philistines' grain harvest and burned up all the fields. But I don't think in American culture you could use a fox to tie a torch to its tail, could you? That wouldn't be very appreciated. I wouldn't appreciate it. They didn't appreciate it. Samson was hated because he was kind of this morose kind of guy. And every time they tried to capture Samson, he played some kind of a joke on them where he ended up killing several of the Philistines. And so it wasn't long before his face was the face on the Philistines' most wanted list. The culture was white hot against Samson and against his life. What happens when you're surrounded by a culture that stands for death and it stands white hot against you and what you believe? Samson had a tough go of it. Secondly, Samson faced another kind of adversity. It was the adversity of his own sin and his own weakness. You see, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That gets dismissed in our culture so much because here's the common word. How would a loving God ever send anyone to hell? How could the wages of sin be death? But you see, a loving God has chosen that no one should perish. The Bible is clear. Christ came so that no one should perish. But it's not like God would be so heinous that he would be a rapist, forcing and imposing himself on you. No, God allows you to choose freely whether you would choose sin and death or whether you would choose eternal life and obedience to Jesus Christ. Samuel could almost obey, though. He had one weakness, being the he-man that he was, the ladies were his Achilles heel. Samson loved the ladies, and he didn't love the ladies within the parameters of the covenant of God. He loved the ladies outside of the parameters of the covenant of God. I remember hearing 
a Pentecostal preacher say these words during a revival service. He said, if Samson would have stayed on his knees in his covenant to God, he never would have wound up on Delilah's knees and lost his power. And that's a, that's a poignant reminder that all of us choose life or we choose death. Samson was in bondage to his own sinfulness. He wanted God's covenant and all the privileges of the covenant, but he didn't want to obey the terms of the covenant. Now, what was his covenant? He was under a Nazarite vow. Two others that were under the Nazarite vow in Scripture were the Lord Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul. In the Nazarite vow, you followed certain laws, and one of them was no razor will touch your head. You only would get a haircut at the ceremonial time where the sanctification laws were in effect so that the head could then be shaved. But Samson, the power of his covenant was in the Nazarite vow. And therefore, his hair was attached to it. And so Delilah became the number one spy for the Philistines. Her job was to get from Samson the secret of the power that really was a supernatural power because it was given by God. It was such a supernatural power that at one point in his life, he took the bone of an animal, its jawbone, and he slew a thousand of the Philistines. You know, on the TV, after you see something wild like that, they once in a while put a disclaimer on the bottom that says, it's good if you don't try this at home. I think we ought to put that disclaimer on, on things right now. Don't anybody try to bring anybody harm with the bone of an animal. But Samson did as a sign and a witness that God is the most powerful force in heaven and earth. Do you believe that God is the most powerful force in heaven and earth? You see, God made the world. He made you and me. And he didn't make us to be sinful people. He made us to be delivered from our bondage to sin. But Samson was not only surrounded by adverse circumstances and a bad context, he was surrounded by his sinfulness and the inability that he imposed upon his life that he didn't choose between life and death. He chose sin. And the day came when he got up and his hair had been cut. Delilah had done him in. The Philistines came and they, they captured Samson. The first thing they did was they gouged his eyes out. You see, the enemy's playing for keeps. I spent two days with my, with my baby girl, my, my daughter. It didn't matter what the outcome of any game was. But it did matter that the outcome was I got some dad time with my daughter. And she uh, began to talk to me in the two-hour drive it was between uh, Kansas City and Manhattan, Kansas. And she said, Dad, we're really hurting in our community. And she teared up. She said, there have been nine soldiers in our community in nine months that have taken their own lives in suicide. And she said, many of them are in our church. And it's just so painful. So very, very painful. And I said, Laura Jane, 
I at Trinity Church have done four suicide funerals since the 1st of July of last year. You see, our culture is a culture of death. It is. It's become a culture of death like no other time in American history in the sense that the, the people are so overwhelmed with culture issues taking our lives. And if we don't take our own life, what about this uh, charming college girl who thought she stepped into a ride that was waiting for her and it became a ride of death? And then my daughter said, Dad, there's something else. The 19 and 20-year-olds come to us for two years at Fort Riley. And my, my uh, daughter is married to an officer in the U.S. Army, and so they, they interact all the time, and they even have uh, events for, for the young GIs that come in. And she said, of the 19 and 20-year-olds that come and spend two years, if they come married, one out of every six leave divorced. You see, the culture has grown so adverse, not in, in, in some foreign place, but for our children, for your children, that this is a message of life and death. What happens? And then the scripture says the wages of sin is death, but pastors shy away from that because they think that that's a morose picture of God. But God isn't the one who inflicts death upon people. God is the one who loves his world so much, he gives them freedom either to say yes to God or to walk away. He loves us so much, he wants us to be free. And sometimes people choose death. And Samson chose death. Despite all of the supernatural power God had given him. So for these three Sundays... I want to really zero in on the fact that we do, in fact, in America and in Mullica Hill, live in a culture that can lead to death. And I want to say once again, though it's not a popular message, the wages of sin is death. When we choose sin instead of Christ, then we become a rejecter. Jesus said, the one who's not for me is against me. And we can be in bondage to our sins because all of sin. So what do we do with our sins? We bring them to Jesus. Jamie Owens wrote a song. She was just in college. And I think her song is the most vivid illustration of good theology in Easter week that we've had written in the 20th century. Big statement, right? We all know about Holy Thursday. We all know about Good Friday. We all know about Easter Sunday. What happens on what some in the 7th century called Silent Saturday? And Jamie Owen said that was the time when Jesus, laying in the bowels of the earth, entered into the regions of the damned, and he led captivity captive. The book of Peter says that he went and preached to the prisons that were in the, the spirits that were in prison. The Apostle Paul said, don't you know before he ascended, he descended in the lower parts of the earth. The Presbyterians still say it in their creed, he descended into hell in their part of the Apostle Creed, but we've taken it out of that Methodist circle. But Christ went to the regions of the dam 
so that there would be no more power of death, hell, and the grave. So listen to these songs. I close with this, and then we're going to take communion together. Here it is. Swallowed into earth's dark tomb, death has triumphed. Culture of adversity. Death has triumphed. That's what they say. But as he enters Hades' womb, the Son of God rose on the third day. Look, the gates of hell are falling. A picture of Samson? Only this is Jesus in the gates of hell. Look, the gates of hell are falling. They're crumbling from the inside out. He's bursting through the walls with laughter. Listen to the angels shout. It is finished. Christ has done it. Life conquered death. Jesus Christ has won it. His plan of battle fooled them all. They led him off to prison to die. But as he enters Hades Hall, he breaks those hellish chains with a cry. Listen to the demons screaming. See him bruise the serpent's head. The prisoners of hell redeeming all the power of death is dead. He has done it. Life conquered death. Jesus Christ has won it. Today, even when you're surrounded with the culture of death and adversity, and our babies are committing suicide. Today, even when we're surrounded with brokenness in homes, Today, even when we're in bondage to our sins and we're powerless to do anything, Jesus Christ comes in his power to set captives free. And today, as you come to Holy Communion, Jesus Christ has grace for you to set you free. We can't do it ourselves. Even though we're surrounded, we're still surrounded by Christ. And so Patrick and the praise team are going to come and they're getting ready to do a song that has a fascinating story to it. Because not long ago, people were worshiping on a Sunday morning in a Pentecostal church and there was a a young woman sitting in the church who was a musician. And she got so overwhelmed in her heart that the world was closing in. She, what we call in the spirit, sat down at the piano And she began to sing, here's the way I fight my battles. Even though I'm surrounded, I'm surrounded by his love. And she kept playing it over and over and over again. And the churches, they say in revival terms, started getting free. People started seeing the kind of Christ that had such victory. We no longer had our eyes on our defeat. We had our eyes on the victor who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And in this auditorium at Trinity this morning, his power is above all others. And so we're going to sing surrounded. And as our worship teams sing surrounded, I want you to come up the center aisle. And I want you to hear Jesus saying to you, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Keith Green had it right when he sang it. In the mighty name of Jesus, today at Trinity, all the power of death is dead. 
In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you're invited. Amen.